The, um, uh, I've gotten to be in Israel when they had their Memorial Day in Israel. What they do is everything in the entire country shuts down for two minutes. As in, I mean, every, every car on the interstate stops. Every car, every single vehicle, every store, every television, everything is shut off. Engines are turned off. Everybody steps outside and stands for two minutes. Um, it's really beautiful, and it really did a, a lot to, um, I wish we did it here. It even did a lot to really kind of uh, increase my appreciation for the concept of memorializing those who have served and given their lives um, to protect freedoms in our nation. And so we always want to appreciate those people well. Um, Veterans Day is, in a lot of ways, is is an appreciation for all of those who served under whatever capacity. Memorial Day is really more of a coming alongside the families of those who have served. So um, if you have a family member who has served in the military or is serving, especially, um, obviously, if they also died in the line of service, could you raise your hand so we could see and communicate our appreciation to you guys? So thank you. Thank you for being willing to sacrifice. Absolutely. Um, and, and no matter how long we spend on that, it always feels rushed. Um, and uh, that would never be the case. We'd never want that to be the case. Um, so we do say uh, such a grateful thank you. And, and again, in our prayers, I mentioned that again. Um, also this week, I feel like I need as the lead pastor to give a report um, on what has happened this week in a couple of different ways. So first, I want to let you guys know a little bit about what the Southern Baptist Convention is, because especially in our church, probably a huge percentage of you really have very little idea of it, which is fine. That's not necessary to know. Um, but I do want you to have an understanding, first, what the Southern Baptist Convention isn't. Um, it isn't a direct authority board over local churches. Baptist churches are each autonomous when it comes to decision-making. You may have imagined it like the Catholic Church or even the United Methodist denomination, both of which have oversight over the local church bodies. That is not the case with the SBC. What unites Southern Baptist churches is doctrinal, not church policy or governance or any central authority other than Christ. Um, That's significant. Um, What the Southern Baptist Convention is It is nothing more than a cooperation of about 50,000 local churches just in the United States alone um, to combine our resources to accomplish what any one of us could not. Schools, seminaries, missions, ministries, and benevolence opportunities, just to name a few. Um, These are often the first on the scene at natural disasters and opportunities to help and comfort people. Um, Super common. Um, So many of you know, if you're paying attention at all to the media this week, that Um, Recently, a report was called for to investigate, um, called for by the Southern Baptist Convention to investigate the Southern Baptist Convention um, over reports of abuse and the mishandling of abuse cases over the last decade and farther back. It was voted on and it was completed and it was released last Sunday. Again, I'm I'm sure many of you know this. Um, uh, I read all of it this week and made a report to the leadership board on what I had read in it. So I'm going to very quickly, it's, it's 300 pages long, so I'm obviously going to give you a very quick summary of what at least my opinion was after reading it. What the report revealed, false teachers and shepherds were revealed in the, by this report in the local church level, and at the same time, leaders who had the courage to step up and bring years of sin to light were also revealed. Um, now we'll get to see what the response to these revelations are, and that's the proper thing for us to be doing now. In it were hundreds of examples of local churches failing to protect their children, failing to protect others in their denomination, and failing to hold accountable leaders who are nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, This is awful. 
It is awful at the local church level to allow for, to cover up, um, to not take seriously this kind of stuff. Also, hundreds of examples of leaders ignoring or hiding the, rebo- or the reports of such abuse all the way at the highest levels within the denomination um, as well. And this is obviously unacceptable. Um, what the report recommends is I would encourage you, South Spring Baptist Church, with this. The different things that the report recommended for the convention to make some of these things right, to the degree those things could be applied at the local church level, South Spring Baptist Church has had them in place for a decade. Um, this is not new for us. These are conversations we've been having, policies we've put in place and procedures we've had in place for years and years to protect against these very kind of things. If you've worked in children's ministry or you've been on our staff or you've had a confrontation or conflict in our church, you know this because you've already been through the so loved material or the conflict material or you've seen what our handbook is like. It's very clear about these things. Um, in fact, at our recent staff retreat, once again, we trained and discussed about protection from abuse. Again, we do it all the time. Here's what I would tell you as your pastor. If you experience something along these lines, abuse or exploitation, I would urge you, the leadership would urge you, the staff would urge you to let someone know. Let staff or leadership know if you face anything like this in any way at this church or at others. If you have faced abuse or trauma, whether through the church or not, that burden is your, not yours to bear alone. Um, we're not afraid to mourn with you, to come alongside you. We're not afraid to confront sin, and we are eager to seek justice. Um, we embrace the idea, as you've heard say over and over again here, that each and all of us must deconstruct our faith in humanity to save us. Once again, we get those reminders week after week, including if they're in religious organizations. Our leadership board will be wrestling over what is the proper response for South Spring And in time, I'll be bringing those thoughts to you as well. I pray, I ask that you would pray for us as we look at these. There are certain indicators, as there always are with true repentance, um, that we should be watching for. One of them already has come into place, several of them have already come into place. One of them is the list of credible accounts that the convention had had kind of secreted away has been released this week. um, And I've read through those as well. Um, I think I know more than average about human depravity. Um, but I will tell you, it, tests, it tested my soul to read through that list this week. Um, at the same time, I am hopeful for the future of the Southern Baptist Convention. We'll see. In addition to that crisis this week, obviously parents who most of us are already have irrational fears about the danger to our children were reminded again this week of just how dark and dangerous our fallen world is. Um, you don't need me to make any report on this. You've been overwhelmed by it all week. Um, But once again, we have to grieve the truth that for all of its wonders, this world is not our home. So I would love for us to pray um, as I hand this over to Paul. I've already gotten to experience um, an excellent sermon this morning in the first hour, and I'm looking forward to doing it again and uh, and to bring us through these conversations. Father, we're so grateful that you are a God of truth and you are a God of justice. Your word never shies away from the sin, even of leaders from the absolute corrupt fall of King David at one point in his life to the denial of the Apostle Peter. Lord, every step of your word shows us that humanity can only be trusted so far. Only you can be our salvation. Only you can be the one we can depend on utterly. Um, Father, I pray that, um, that you would guide us through this conversation as we continue to have it. I pray for the convention and for the churches and for the thousands and thousands of victims of abuse Um, in our nation. Lord, I pray that the church will continue to step forward 
and more and more churches will be a light on these topics. Um, God, you're not afraid to confront sin, and we shouldn't be either. Lord, we humbly repent when we see it, and we ask that you would help us to grow and change. Search us, Lord, know us, um, and reveal to us all of our inward ways. Lord, I pray for our church that you would protect us and continue to protect us from the abuse of those who need protecting. Lord, we, are, we will do our best um, to follow you in that. God, I pray um, for all of us as we seek to learn to live, to continue to learn to live in a broken and fallen world. Lord, even as we mourn, we don't mourn like the world mourns. We, don't, we mourn, but we don't mourn without hope. And I pray you would continue to stir, to fan into flame the hope within us through the power of your word and the work of your spirit. Amen. Amen. Paul, thanks, man. Thanks, Chris. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you're now at the place of like, that was some heavy stuff, let's um, be cheered up uh, by going to some lighthearted, easy passages of Scripture. Um, I'm sorry, that's not uh, the continuation of it. Again, we don't, uh, to the much as in our ability, plan out. We just teach topically. Uh, I mean, we don't teach topically. We teach by Scripture from one verse section to the next verse section, and it is amazing how the Lord um, chooses to bless that and align so much of what we're talking about um, with the events, and so we aren't contrived to do that, uh, but he has, again, presented that with us uh, this morning. Now, I will start by telling you something about uh, your pastor, in case you don't know it. Um, uh, Chris is one of those that, by baseline equation, if there's a good time to be had, more people is only better, right? If it's going to be good and you add more people, how is that a bad thing? That's only going to make for a better thing. And so even to the place of like, if a friend of his knows he's not going to be available for something fun that he would like to do, you know, some of us are like, well, don't even invite me if you already know I can't come because then I'm going to be bummed to miss out. No, he by joy wants to be invited even knowing he'll have to say no just because he gets excited that there's a good thing going on that he would like to do and a lot of people are doing it. This is, again, by baseline, some of his personality. Now, it is also true of the inverse of that. Now, Chris is also one that if there is suffering to be had or a hardship to go through, um, that that as well is something that he doesn't want to do alone, but it's only better when you add more people. Now, some of that comes from, again, a, a burden shared makes a lighter load, um, but then some of that also comes off of um, what, what I will confess and say I relate and why we get along so well uh, is just there's something about the shared misery together. You know, Chris and I don't tell the stories of us on campouts or things where everything went well and swimmingly and there was no major event. What are the stories we always tell? It's the ones where I can't believe we almost burned down our tent or I can't believe we did burn down our tent. These are the stories. When something goes wrong, it's like when you're in that misery and you have to suffer through it, there's some kind of bonding that naturally occurs. This is what happened for those of y'all who were here last week um, in a light sense of without having power. There's something about us suffering through that together that just unifies, that just brings us together. Um, and so, again, I think under that kind of auspice, uh, apparently I've learned now this also applies to teaching Scripture, um, that if Chris is going through a section that is hard uh, and is dealing hard, um, he doesn't want to do it alone. And so thanks, Chris, for inviting me <laughs> to teach. And thank you all for being here. Um, we have been, if you haven't been here um, with us, we've been preaching through Second Peter. We're now coming and, and closing up, getting the end part of chapter 2. Um, chapter 1 all starts off where Peter um, has been, it's, it's all about the participation in the glorious eternal work of Christ, um, what, 
what he has accomplished that you can participate in both this life and the next to come. But then chapter 2 takes this rapid shift. Um, It's this harsh contrast of this glorious news now presented um, as a warning and a condemnation to these false teachers who have denied that news for themselves but seek to pervert it for their misgains. And so we get into this heavy, heavy um, section here. And, and it starts off with this very, very uh, clear warning from um, all of this goodness in chapter 1 to then quickly move to, but wait, there are people who deny our master who seek to abuse this message. And that happened in verse 1. He then illustrates, Peter goes on and illustrates these false teachers in their conduct. He, he begins to um, talk about what they've done, sprinkled thus far is this counterexample of these spiritually proud people, these self-sufficient, um, these self-motivated um, people who are uh, up to despicable exploits and using an umbrella of the gospel to try to convince others to join them. You know, again, this section, as Chris put it, is not one you're going to find, um, you know, embroidered onto a, a nice piece of fabric hanging in your um, mother, in your grandmother's house um, with words like, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. I've not many, seen many t-shirts or coffee mugs with that one. But I am reminded of, uh, um, uh, reminded of what a pastor of the uh, church that I grew up in always used to say, um, but not all medicine tastes good, yet in the hands of the great physician it is all profitable. If it increases our earnest expectation this morning for the assured goodness that God has accomplished in his grace and is it offered to us in salvation, then all the better to suffer together through that hard message than to do it alone. So again, thank you. Again, where are we? We've jumped in. We've seen this conduct of these um, false teachers presented to us already in this past previous section that Chris covered last week. They're described, their conduct is described in the first part um, as brazen, prideful, Uh, They are self-willed and self-sufficient. Then it moves on and it talks about their unashamed indulgence in sensuality and their greed, their love for money, and how those two things are are entwined. And then now we're going to pick up and we're going to start this morning in our text in verse 17, where we'll see the teaching exposed and such the dangers of a moral apostasy that these false teachers are are, uh, engaging in. So let's consider the text. I'm going to invite you out of the reverency of God's word to stand, and I'm going to start um, by reading in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. These are waterless springs and mist driven by storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. The very words of God. Pray with me. Lord, we know that your word is true and beneficial to us. Help us rightly see what Peter wrote, what he wrote rightly in history to a specific time and to specific circumstances, which holds true speaking to every subsequent generation 
and holds true and meaningful to us today. Lord, may we see the doom pronounced to them, but not miss the warning of danger for us as well. Amen. Y'all may be seated. The end of the prayer was one that was on, felt like it was on repetition for me this week. Um, it really was that uh, a time, and we're reminded that it's so often easy to go to the promises of God and want to tout them up as sure and then count them as promised to us, thus granted to us, but just in the same severity, so are the warnings of God. They are no less serious and applicable for us. And again, this feels a bit rough in this passage facing these condemnations. This list of condemnations that, again, it's not starting in this one. What we're reading, it started from the very beginning. Back in verse 1, he's talking about these false teachers bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep in verse 3. And then most recently in verse 12, we ran into we will also, they will also be destroyed in their destruction. This is harsh condemnation. And it, may, it led me to at least ask, like, so why is, why is Peter being so strong here with the condemnation? I mean, wouldn't it just be easier to minimize that condemnation and maximize the grace of, a, of the all-sufficient grace-giving God? You know, and you'd think maybe even, too, as one who most famously has denied the master, who has experienced grace after denial, wouldn't he have a similar message that sounds a little bit softer to these guys? Um, but God's economy doesn't have to separate those concepts. God perfectly uh, can enact both his grace and his condemnation. That is not in contradiction. So for us, sometimes we struggle as limited beings, as him, as an unlimited being. He doesn't have to wrestle with that. It reminds me of a a line years ago in a... um, in an evangelism training program that I went through when I was a youth, um, sponsored by Eventel uh, Ministries, uh, where they talked about when in pre- present- presenting the gospel, um, how you may be tempted to minimize um, the severity of sin and its consequences or minimize our own depravity in the participation of that sin and just maximize the grace. But their line in there is the encouragement never to do that because for you can't minimize the consequences of sin without minimizing both the, the effectiveness and the sureness of grace that God can give. And so when minimizing one, you're only minimizing the other. So don't minimize, maximize the consequences and severity and our own depravity so it maximizes the Lord's grace that he offers in repentance. I think, again, this is the weightiness that Peter's holding here, and this is why he doesn't hold back the punches. What helped me kind of process this really was kind of two um, thought processes uh, or pictures that I had in mind. Um, The first one, when I was reading Peter's words, it helped me to think of my own children. And perhaps as you consider children or your own children, this will resonate. Again, the thought, think through this with my children, the thought of somebody coming in, drawing them away, teaching them lies and introducing them to despicable practices, all while claiming to be in line with the truth that I know is best for them, well then yes, it's pretty easy to understand some very harsh words coming out of my mouth towards anybody who seeks that endeavor, and I'm sure you do the same. Um, And I will also take the liberty on behalf of Pastor Chris and the leadership board, if you happen to be here in this church for nefarious purposes, there will be strong words, very strong words. It's best not to stick around. 
But second is remembering, again, this concept of why Peter would take such a harsh stand is because the harshness of his stand really leads for no middle ground because there isn't a middle ground. I mean, think back to the call that Peter um, presented us back in his first book in chapter 5, verse 2, where he calls us to shepherd the flock that God has entrusted us, uh, entrusted to us and to care over them as an overseer. I mean, this is, this is what Peter takes seriously. This is what's happening, is he's having those enter into the flock who are wolves trying to steal away his sheep. And so he knows that he's got to call them out for what it is, and he's got to get rid of them, um, because Peter knows that to not run off the wolves means that two things. One, you're putting your sheep in peril, and then also you are suspect to your own role as a shepherd. You're not a very good shepherd if you don't scare off the wolves, and thus also protect your sheep. J.J. Packard, in his book, um, in reference to the Puritans' uh, quest for godly writing, um, puts it like this, and I thought it was so well I put it on the screen. Shepherds are responsible for rebuking heresy and defending truth, lest their flocks be misled, misled and thereby enfeebled, if not worse. Biblical truth is nourishing. Human error is killing. So spiritual shepherds must guard sound doctrine at all costs. I think this puts maybe a greater pastoral hat on Peter, and thus we can understand the severity of his condemnation in words. So let's go back and consider some of those words together. Let's go back in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. What an interesting word picture that he starts off with. Um, essentially, he's calling these false teachers both empty and useless. They are empty and they are useless. The way that this would be communicated, I have to imagine, is stronger to the original audience, um, to the Israelites, than it is for us today. I think we can relate, but I have to imagine they would take it much more seriously. Because after all, where did they live? Where? In Israel, in a desert, arid, dry a place that water takes on a whole nother level of value than it does for us today. In fact, even today, the Israeli government actually has put enough practices and developed their wastewater treatment system to, to reclaim 90% of every bit of drop of water that goes into their wastewater treatment. That's actually about three, if not four times greater than any other nation's national average for accomplishing that. It's that important because, again, in desert, water is that important. And so they take it very seriously. You have to imagine, um, you know, thinking back to being an Israelite wandering through the wilderness or moving through the desert, and then you're thirsty, but then uh, wait up there, you see a spring. You imagine the sense of hope, the sense of relief, the excitement that you would have only then to make that journey over there and to find that well dry. I got to imagine that there's something more than just... Um, disappointment there when you get to it and find it empty. And I think this is the false teachers. They're luring people away as if they're saying, I have uh, the water, I have the well, come to me and you will find this fulfillment. And really what they're doing is that they are empty. There's a lot of hope in these people going to them, but there is no water. It sounds like a, a similar cry that Jesus, when we considered when we studied the book of John, when he said words like this, if you drink this well, you will never thirst again, speaking of himself. Or similarly, in a couple chapters later, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
I think, again, this is probably to the greater argument that these false teachers aren't believers because they don't have rivers of living water coming out of them. They are waterless springs. And what was a great prayer that Chris even brought up on the podcast this week about what such a, a prayer of protection that this place, South Spring Baptist Church, uh, may never be found just to be another waterless spring. So not only are these guys empty, but they are useless. And that's what we get in the next part, the mists driven by a storm. Because the great other provision of water at the time in the desert is when the rain comes in. But this isn't talking about a rain that actually falls coming with a subsequent storm. This is talking about when you see the dark clouds full of rain, you see the mist on the horizon, and instead of it leading to rain, instead the wind just pushes it by. And it's useless. It doesn't provide any water. And as we understand as good East Texans, it just makes things more humid. Not fun. So for these guys, these empty and useless guys, um, Peter reserves, uh, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Alistair Begg, in his writing on it, uh, wrote it as this, the shadows they cast are nothing compared to the darkness for them. I think they're full of empty promises, and I think they get the fulfillment of their lives, which is utter emptiness, darkness. I think this also makes sense when we look back, I don't think Peter's missing this connection as well. Back to 13, um, when they were described as doing their insatiable acts uh, in broad daylight, well, then what would be the natural response that they would receive? Utter darkness in contrast. They're empty springs without water. They parade around with an outward appearance like they've put it all together, but they're empty. Verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Again, this is just a repetition of a point. Um, Peter's made this point, and now he's making it again. It's a, um, a, a very, very fitting way of writing during this time um, where you stress something over and over again. He, he wrote this first back in verse 2. Then he wrote it again, almost similarly, in verse 7. He repeats it in verse 14, and now we get this repeated once again. But we get this. Um, figurative beginning as an expounding on the method of which they're doing this here in this verse. Um, the speaking loud boasts of folly. The word here um, in Greek speaks of bold, excessive, and pompous arrogance. This is the nature that it comes out of. Um, the word itself in Greek is huperonkos. And it's just one of those words, and when I at least read it, it just makes sense. It just sounds like a fitting word for somebody who's proud and arrogant. It kind of just sounds like it would be the kind of thing you'd hear on the playground, you know, kind of when you're arguing about somebody when you, you know they're the bully and you know you're right and, and you, you, you're so frustrated but you don't have the word uh, to come up with. And so you're just like, you're, I mean, you're just like a, you're, you're a big, you're a hooperongos head. Right? Like, this is what children would say. This is where I take this. It just sounds like this is coming against somebody who's just bullying for all the wrong reasons. This Hooperongo said. <laughs> By the way, terrible way to exposit Greek into helpful things. That's not the methodology uh, that is helpful there. But as a mnemonic device, if it helps bring into memory, hopefully then I'll leave that um, with you. But I must apologize for that. But it is with these loud, arrogant voices that then they seek to entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Michael Green, in his commentary, wrote it like this, and I thought it was also worth putting on the screen for you. They are dominated by lust, and their passions are given free reign while their mental and spiritual sides are atrophied. They are dead, 
and they're inviting other people only into death. There's no denial of the truth of Jesus that doesn't also then follow subsequent moral failure. Um, You can't deny one and keep the other, and that's exactly what we're seeing going on here. So how do they go about such an enticement to embrace this life? Well, in 19, we get more about their method. Apparently, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. It doesn't seem far off of how they just picked and choose, perhaps from Peter's own words, right? Maybe back to 1 Peter 2.16 when he writes, live as people who are free. But then maybe they just stopped there and didn't continue because if they continued, they would have gotten the message, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I think this is the exact true freedom we get time and time again in the New Testament. It's a call to freedom that then is a call to live underneath his reign, not the reign of your passions, not the reign of your self-will, but only his. You know, Paul already knew this was a dangerous way of twisting truth, and so he presented to the Galatians in chapter 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You can see how this could be the aim of the false teacher just to conveniently live out, leave out that middle part. You're called to freedom, but through love serve one another. Maybe it's this mixed message again that they just picked and choose out of Galatians 5, saying there's freedom in Christ. He has set us free, so stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to the yoke of slavery once again. Away with the enslaving rules for the body. You are not under the law. You are now under grace. Maybe that was the message that they were clearly saying, of saying Christ has set us free, and now we're free to choose whatever is fit for us. But then that neglects the actual whole message in Galatians. Most clearly, it neglects what Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are still debtors, just not debtors to the flesh. Now we have, thanks to the Spirit, true freedom to live as servants of God. I'd say like this, freedom is not the absence of duty, rather it is the empowerment that God accomplishes for us to obey. Freedom doesn't mean we get to neglect our duty, but freedom gives us the right choice to point him as our master instead of sin. I came across William Calpert's um, poem called Love Constraining Obedience, and I'm just going to read it through. Because I think it attests to this rightly. No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord all right. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but I toiled without success. Then to obtain from outward sin what more that I could do than I could do. Now if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise, now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. What shall I do was then the word, what I may grow worthier, that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. 
I think this is the right understanding of freedom. This is what the false teachers were getting wrong. They were pronouncing a freedom uh, that put one under their own command, and that is the mistake. Um, even, even back then, even secular writers in the first century, Seneca the Younger wrote, to be enslaved to oneself is the heaviest of all servitudes. You know, Jesus' call again in John 8, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. True freedom comes from the work of Christ, not anything we can accomplish. And true freedom is, is subjecting and getting to choose him as a master to live out for his pleasures. Let's continue in verse 20. For after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. This is the verse we're going to end with today, uh, but it's also to give comfort because in the brevity of time, we're not going to do it justice right now. Uh, but this is also the verse that Chris is going to be picking up on um, and finishing out this section in the chapter next week, um, especially to uh, take the time to mention the assuredness of our salvation, which this verse kind of can be read out of context to, to want to make a different claim of, towards that. Um, but not getting into all that, we'll save that for the next week. I do agree with the commentators to say that this isn't about um, believing converts. This is still the condemnation of the false teachers who were never, uh, never saved, as we see it is here. Um, and so I think it, it comes to make more sense when we consider this, that the notion of them escaping the defilements of this world is all about their outer behavior. Their outer contact, context changed, but not their inward heart. They were pompous and they put themselves up as if they were ones who have arrived, but really they had never accepted the grace um, and had an inward change. And I think this is the danger that Peter's pointing out to them, and this is the danger that we can still see uh, even today. I mean, there's still how many people that we know that, um, you know, just point back to a life where it's like, well, on Saturday night, you know, I was up till 4.30, I was partying, I was living, I was doing all the things for me, but you know what, I saw the foolishness in that, and so now, here I am, I've given all that up, and so instead of doing those things, here I am at uh, the 10.30 service, or as I told the first service, and I think we can all agree, here I am at the 9 o'clock service because I want double Jesus points, because there does seem something, something special about that. <laughs> No, they got a good kick out of it too. The, uh, the notion here, though, is not anything. If, if the question comes before you, you know, again, why should you be saved? Why should you have entrance into heaven? Why should you have, stand in right relationship with God? And if the answer starts with anything that begins with the pronoun I, I did this. I give this. I serve here. I do this or that. If the answer starts with I, then you're missing the point. The answer can only and emphatically start with because he, because Jesus. The only reason I have entrance into heaven is not because of what I did, only because of the grace and the sufficiency that he did and offered to me. And I think this is what the false teachers were perverting. This is what the false teachers were empty inside, never experienced that. And were seeking to abuse and pull away new converts towards their own endeavors and for their own profitable gain. And thus is the condemnation. Because this is the truth also. And if you stand here this morning and you consider those standing before Christ as uh, one who is sanctified, and the only excuse you can give is because you've done something to earn it, then I'm afraid the same condemnation is going to be for you. 
And so we'd say to others this, is that perhaps today, not as just something to beat you down, but something as a word of encouragement. If you consider that relationship and it is your entire time been answered on what you've done, then may today be the day of salvation and give that over to the Lord and accept what his free gift is offered up to you. And I think that would be a fantastic thing to do during this time of invitation. If you have questions about what that looks like, you can feel free to come up. You can ask us or you can ask most anybody in this room um, and we would love to tell you more about that. Or maybe now it's during this time of invitation um, that you, like myself, is now acknowledging that, yes, I have accepted that free gift, but oh, man, there are so many ways that I still don't act out what I believe is true. Um, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, as the centurion soldier said. Maybe it is this time during invitation that you need to consider the Holy Spirit, um, be desperate upon him uh, to impress upon you what needs to be changed, and then be encouraged by his promise to accomplish what only he can do. Maybe that's your response this morning. Or maybe lastly, um, uh, it is during this time that if you've met with Lance or gone through the Welcome Home Team process uh, and you've decided that you want to join this dysfunctional family to gather together, not to get it right every time, but to point constantly to his grace in our lives and to preserve the truth of Scripture that we need to align ourselves with, not our own individual desires. If that's your desire and you want to come forward and make membership known, uh, you're welcome to do so in this time. I'm going to invite you to stand. You can ignore me. You can sit. You can come forward and pray. You can kneel at the side. You can go and meet with somebody who's willing to pray with you. Whatever response and whatever posture you need to take, I pray now you do so. All right. Have a seat real quick. Um, we'll let you know that the Penningtons joined in the first service, Kyle and Kristen and Barrett and Dean, and we're excited about that. Um, the Ogletrees, who have not joined yet, although they've started that process, but they came this morning to let us know, or at least Elliot let us know, um, little Elliot, had, he had put his faith in Jesus Christ this week and wanted to celebrate that with him. And so we got to do that. <clears throat> um, we also, um, Matthew Strube and his family, who he is, he is going to be transferring. Um, he's been in law enforcement and is transferring to training in Austin um, to be training other people. And, uh, and we launched them this morning and laid hands on them and prayed to send them. Um, we'll miss them, but, um, but he, what he's doing is, a, is an awesome thing for his family um, and uh, for the community. And so we're so glad that he's going to be doing that. If you see him, uh, if you see the Strubes, tell them a thank you for how they serve. And uh, we're excited to, to be a part of what God's going to do with them uh, down in Austin. And, uh, and finally, I get to introduce the Arringtons to you. Come on up, guys. Um, the Arringtons are not only joining our church today, but they're joining our staff, uh, well, technically a week ago. So, um, we wrestled and finally decided that even though Blake doesn't have red hair, many of his children do, and that's, we're going to count that as a dispensation for him. Um, <laughs> so um, we're, we're excited to have them. So many of you know, uh, uh, Rebecca Rains recently was married. Now, Rebecca Lizenby uh, was recently married. And um, uh, it was kind of funny when we started dividing her job, which we knew years ago when we gave her this job, it was too big for one person. Um, but where we were, we just we needed to, to leave it there for now, knowing that the plan eventually was to split that in half. And uh, it was shocking when we split it in half and created a job um, that Blake is now taking on. Um, so if you can imagine, this is half of this was half of what she was responsible for is men's and women's ministry and uh, college and 
um, singles ministry and life groups and discipleship ministry. And so that's the part that Blake is now taking point on as our executive pastor of adult ministries. And so um, I'm super pumped about this. You will be too as you get to know him and get to know his family. Um, they are awesome. And, uh, and so we're excited to have them here with us to be serving. And you will be um, hearing from him as he seeks to uh, roll you into these different ministries to serve and lead. If you already know that the one of those that I just listed is something you're passionate about and you're not already engaged in, don't wait for him. Reach out to him, and uh, and that would be an awesome thing as well.